This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. person's case I thought would have gotten a lot more attention than it has but I'm, I'm going to bring him up here and we're going to talk about a couple of things in his case that are sort of odd he's a he's a Christmas Eve case technically uh, I believe the reported date is December 25th he goes into Namus in June of 2009 on June 1st 2009 the date of last contact there is listed as December 25th 2003 out of Middlesex, North Carolina, which is in Wilson County. Um, he was 22 years old when he went missing on December 25th, 2003. He was five feet, four inches tall and 180 pounds. Uh, we are talking today about a gentleman. If he were alive, he'd be 42 years old uh, this Christmas. He is an African-American male and his name is Travis Lamont Lynch. If you go into NamUs, he's MP2241. Uh, there are, you know, there's some brief descriptions in there of a 1992 Pontiac Grand Am he might have been driving, and the license plate uh, is a white Grand Am. He was seen with blue jeans and a light brown T-shirt. Uh, he has a tattoo of a T on his right arm. He's got a birthmark near his mouth on the left side of his face. Uh, black hair, brown eyes. Um, the Nash County Sheriff's Office has this case. It does not currently have an investigator that I saw. They did put several pictures up on his name as profile um, that have been uh, put in there more recently, I would say. Now, he pops up on the Charlie Project, the Rocky Mount Telegram, North Carolina Wanted, uh, Spring Hope Enterprise, Wilson Times, WRAL, they've all run some different stories. And I pulled a restoration news media story for it, which is, that's the, the website for the Wilson Times. I'm going to use that as well. I'm going to start with this at the Charlie Project and sort of go over it with you, Meg. It's, it's like their basic description. But it says that Travis was last seen on Christmas Eve 2003. He had been drinking heavily at a friend's house, and he and his girlfriend, Carlisha Whitley, went to her house on Claude Lewis Road in Middlesex, North Carolina, so that he could sober up. He was last seen leaving her home around 1 a.m. So, okay, 
that's where we get the 25th out of this. Does that make sense? Right. Mm -hmm. So so technically it's Christmas Eve night, but it spills over in the midnight hour. Um, And if you don't mind doing this, do you mind checking while I'm reading this next part? See what the weather was like in North Carolina Christmas Eve 2003. Travis is supposed to call Carlisha when he gets home, but he never did. Do you you have people in your life that do this, by the way, that do the, I'll text you when I get there or whatever? Well, I do, but I've never had an instance where I panicked when they didn't or that they panicked when I didn't. Yeah. I (laughs) So it's kind of pointless, right? Yeah. Well, my kid, as my kids gotten older running around with friends, that's our deal. Like, you know. Let me know where you're going and who you're kind of going with. So I have an idea of, of where you're going to be. I will say it's easier today because we share locations amongst ourselves. Right. You kind of know where somebody's phone last was or their whatever they've shared. He doesn't call Carlisha when he gets home. And she ends up calling his mom and saying, hey, did, you know, did Travis come home? And Travis is family members go over to Claude Lewis road in Middlesex. Oh, they, Oh, they go over to, it says when Travis's family members went to Middlesex to ask about them, they weren't allowed inside. So I'm not sure if they mean her home or elsewhere. His mom ends up reporting him missing on December the 26th. He's never been heard from again. Uh, you ask about the weather. Um, so in North Carolina on, uh, Christmas Eve going into Christmas. So Christmas Eve, it was the high of 57, low of 32. Christmas Day, it was high of 42, low of 22. And there was no discernible precipitation. Okay. That's what I thought, but I I wanted to make sure because, you know, the car gets stuck in here. His car was a white 1992 Pontiac Grand Am. It had the North Carolina license plate number RZS4814, and it's never been found. Charlie Project puts a photo of a similar car up. So Travis had purchased this vehicle just the day before he went missing. So he basically got this car right around Christmas. His previous car had been damaged in a crash, and he liked this car, so he was happy that he'd gotten it. Now, four months after Travis goes missing, a mobile home owned by Carlisha Whitley's family, it gets destroyed in uh, two fires. That residence was located on Stony Hill Church Road near Bailey, North Carolina, and it did not have electricity at the time. It initially caught fire on April 23rd, 2004, but didn't completely burn down. A few days later, there was another fire at the home, and that home was destroyed on the second fire. At the time, it was occupied by a gentleman named Sean Fonte Whitley. Now, Sean is currently as of the writing, serving a federal prison for unrelated drug offenses. But it says he was due to be released in 2021. Investigators believe the fires were suspicious, but they stopped short of ruling them as arson. He's got the last name Whitley, so I'm sure there's some kind of relationship there that we're going to just uncover as we keep talking. Police believe that the fires may have been related to Travis's disappearance. I find it odd that they stopped short of arson. That was absolutely arson. Like, why? <laughs> I mean, I don't understand, you know, a, a structure, no electricity, catches fire. And like when it doesn't burn down the first time, 
a couple days later, it's on fire again to completely burn it down. I could make a BS argument here about like when things like that happen, sometimes it's a, what are the investigators? Because this would be the fire to fire investigators, right? Should be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is clearly arson. It's, it's crazy to me sometimes, that that's not the case. Sometimes fires can reignite in places and that can happen within a couple of days of the first fire. So it's not always just arson, but you're let me, right. In let me case. ask you something. If there's no electricity to a structure, any structure, what can catch it on fire? Natural gas, propane. Okay, but it doesn't do that on its own. No, it takes a person. It takes a match or a, a source of... Because there's not going to be a spark, right? There's no electricity. No, I'm with you. I'm totally okay. with you. So I'm just saying that when you rule things out, now I guess I could... It, it doesn't say they rule them out. It says they didn't rule them arson. They stopped shooting. No, short. no. I'm saying like because they've said there's no electricity, you're ruling out that oh. element as a possible cause, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, this was in April. I guess maybe somebody had built a fire and they weren't a good fire attendant trying to keep warm in the... I'm saying because they didn't have electricity. Yeah, I follow you. If they're cold, you know, you know, and I'm saying maybe that wouldn't be arson, right? <laughs> but uh, it seems odd that they would have continued to be there when it like partially burnt down. Right. Well, Sean Whitley, he gets released in August 2021. Just pointing that out because uh, the information is slightly different. But now this case on the Charlie Project had not been updated since March of 2020. There have been no relevant updates on Namus either that I could find. It's The last sentence on Charlie Project says, it's uncharacteristic of Lynch to leave without warning. He has a violent temper. Investigators theorize he got into a physical altercation with someone that resulted in his death. His his case remains unsolved. Right, except where's his car? That, that, there we go. That's and um, I actually had something that I thought was that I think could be relevant. Uh, did you have something to say? I'm sorry, I kind of cut you off. No. All right. So the story is that after they were on Claude Lewis Road, Travis left his girlfriend's house, headed towards Glendale Drive. In, I believe it was Wilson. So they're going from Middlesex to Wilson. And I looked it up on a map. And uh, any way you go, you're looking from 22 to 25 minutes. And it's approximately, like if you go straight, it's a 15-mile journey with a couple of other alternate routes that would be about 16-ish miles, okay? What direction are you headed if you do that? Okay, so you're going from... You're going from west east. Okay. So uh, Claude Lewis Road is west of uh, Glendale Drive, and there it pretty much is a straight shot. Uh, I mean, it's not a straight shot in that like there's not like stoplights and turns. It's just it's a pretty straight up path that would be um, being taken by whoever's driving it. Right. Yeah. So I now okay. I I did take into consideration what they were thinking because I feel like the family. It was uncharacteristic of him to not show up for Christmas. I assume, and I assume he was going back to his house where his parents lived. And 
I'm making those presumptions based on nothing. So I could be wrong. I immediately looked because his car is missing. He had been drinking heavily. There's no definitive answer as to whether he actually sobered up or not. And so I feel like there are actually two places along this route that he would have traveled home uh, that he could have ended up in water in his vehicle. You can go with specifics if you want. Yeah, I can tell you. Um, so it, it's possible that he went into um, Turkey Creek and ended up in the Buckhorn Reservoir. Okay. Or um, he could have uh, he could have ended up in uh, the Wiggins Mill Reservoir, which uh, it seems a little less likely, but, uh, also, but still possible. Now, as far as that goes, those are literally the only two places of water he could have ended up if he hold on one second, traveled that route. Do you have the map still up? Yeah. Is camp Charles on this road or close to this road? I have no idea. Um, if you, I'm pretty sure I've been on Claude Lewis road. What did, you, what did you ask? It's, I was just asking if Camp Charles is there. When I, what city is it in? I don't Camp Charles I, Lake? Uh, yeah, that, it, there is a lake. Camp Charles is a Boy Scout camp I went to on weekend camping trips in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, it's not. It's it's slightly north. It's close to Claude Lewis Road. Uh, it's not included in the route that is suggested. But, yeah, I guess, I mean, if he was going to go – the reason I say this is this. When we went there, first of all, Claude Lewis Road has points in it that are very nonsensical. The If it's what I'm remembering. Like, it suddenly is a hairpin turn, left, right. And I actually walked around that Boy Scout camp um, in the day and at night several times, long, long time ago. And there are retention ponds everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? Like, little... Like and they go all the way back up to Turkey Creek, which is what you were talking about. I don't know. I don't it, see where there's a main road that is right there on it, but um, I can send you this. Hold on, just a second. But it's possible. Um, that is so. When I said that those are the only two, that was based on the routes I was given. Because uh, I don't have addresses. I just have from Claude Lewis Road in Middlesex, North Carolina, to Glendale Drive in Wilson, North Carolina. Yeah. And so that's what I went off of. Glendale Drive, is it on the east side or west side? It didn't say. Mm. Why? Well, if it's on the west side, he would have taken a different path than if it's on the east side is all. I, uh, I'm not doing a great job like explaining what I'm thinking here. So let me say it this way. I've been down there. And I, I when we started talking about this, I didn't equate it. Because what I remember is when... When that went on, like, the troops' calendar, it went on as Bailey, North Carolina. And I just remembered that there was a Claude Lewis road that we would take for the last stretch. You said Buckhorn Shelter, and it made me think of it. Um, we would take into Camp Charles. And this was not our regular place. It was an alternative place that we went. Um, anyway. So it's Buckhorn Reservoir. Yeah, that's south of, of what I was thinking of for Claude Lewis. But Turkey Creek does go to Buckhorn Reservoir. Um, but my point is, what I'm remembering is that if you go from Claude Lewis Road from like the top of the road, 
and you head kind of back through to Wilson. You don't take a main highway. Like 264 is the main highway you would take along there. Um, that's from my college days, and I know that. But um, when I was a Boy Scout, I wasn't driving. I was riding. And there are little – I can only call them – they're not big. They're retention ponds. They're like little ponds. But they're everywhere down there. If you went the back way, if you're drunk, leaving at 1 a.m., you know, That's order. interesting because I I can't I maybe they're just so small but I just don't see them. Hold on, I'll pull up what you got here. What what did you say? You you went Claude Lewis Road. Yeah, and I put Milton. in I put in Glen. Okay, it's called Claude Lewis Road in Middlesex. Right. And then he's going to Glendale Drive in Wilson. What view are you looking at? Satellite. Yeah. Click terrain and see if that changes it for you. Okay. Uh, so Camp Charles uh, comes up there, but um, here, I'll show you. It's not really. I just pulled it up. Here we go. Okay. This is what I'm talking about. Um, I use Glendale Drive West. I don't know if that's accurate. And Well, if you put Glendale Drive in, it still comes up Glendale Drive West. So Okay. Well, here's what I'm talking about. If you look at, this is what I was remembering. You see these little blue spots that are all along the sides of the road here? Those are retention ponds. They're everywhere in that area. And they have little tiny fences around them in some of them. Okay. I am betting that if you want to find Travis, I totally understand there's this other element. And I'm going to bring up more of the other element in a second. I'm betting if you want to find Travis and he took a back road because he had been drinking and didn't want to get caught that that white Pontiac Grand Am is in one of those ponds. Well, I I feel, and that's possible. Um, it, uh, yeah, they're pretty small though, I think. Um, they're, real, they're real small, but they're, like if you were to take the wrong turn off of any of those roads, and there's more than just in, than what I showed you in the picture there. There's more, the further east you get, the more you see of them. And my point is, I always wondered, if you could put a car in one of those things. And a few years ago, we had a case where, I, I don't know if you remember this, a car had just slipped into a retention pond. I think it was in Ohio. Right. Well, there's been several cases where um, vehicles have been recovered in the strangest, smallest bodies of water, right? Yeah, I'm just betting that a, and, a, and I say this because he it's a brand new car to him. She describes him as having been drinking. So he doesn't know his car yet. And if he's been drinking and he's trying to avoid the police and goes the back way, which is the way that's on the map that I showed you, that's how you end up in one of those retention ponds pretty quick. Right. And I mean, I guess that's possible. I also think it's entirely possible he was just on the main road and he ended up in one of the bigger uh, reservoirs. Yeah, I, I would believe that too. I was just uh, kind of pontificating with that but no i mean what what either way you look at it now the other thing i considered which is it's a new thing that i haven't really wrapped my head completely it's a new thing to me um is the fact that like he could also be in one of the various vast forests yeah um that you know he would encounter along the way it seems more likely that in 20 years somebody would have found that vehicle by now well, with it being a white car, I think it would stand out against the backdrop down there from what I remember. But you're right. Um, it could happen. It's not – from what I can see, 
it's not a situation where there's like acres and acres of um, like uninhabited territory there, right? Yeah. It's like somebody would come across it. I don't know. So I feel like when they went um, trying, uh, when his family, when he didn't show up and his family was trying to find him and they weren't let in to the girlfriend's house or wherever they were trying to go in at, I feel like that gave um, this case a certain uh, spin to it, right? Uh, that may or may not have been relevant. Yeah, I tried to find the source of that too because I figured that's where we're headed next. In April 2020, Wilson Times ran an interesting article about this case. A guy named uh, 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 the writer is uh, Lindell K K A Y, and here's what it says: the headline is "Missing Man Likely Didn't Try to Drive Home." A missing Wilson man may have never made it to his girlfriend's house or tried to drive home the night he vanished. Travis Lamont Lynch, 21, left his girlfriend's home near Middlesex at 1 a.m. on Christmas Day, 2003. He'd been drinking heavily, and he drove away in his white 1992 Pontiac Grand Prix. At least that's the story his girlfriend, Carlisha Whitley, told authorities and a newspaper reporter back then. But detectives now say there's no real proof Travis ever tried to drive home or that he even made it to Middlesex in the first place on the night he disappeared. Several attempts by this newspaper to reach Whitley have been unsuccessful including messages left at her new home. As a review of archive news reports can tell, Alicia Whitley had only given one interview about Travis in the 16 years he's been missing. J. Eric Eckerd is an award-winning journalist who writes for Our State Magazine. But in 2003, Eckerd worked for the Rocky Mount Telegram as a assistant news editor, and he covered Travis's missing person story as it initially unfolded. Eckerd wrote hundreds of crime stories during his time at the Telegram, but he said recently that he remembers Travis's case because he disappeared during the holiday season. The Christmas thing sticks out, Eckerd said. I don't know if I can add much to the story I wrote almost 20 years ago. Of course, I stand by the quotes. I wish I could remember the specifics behind the interview. According to that 2003 article, Carlisha Whitley said that Travis left her home on Claude Lewis Road to drive home. I'm thinking the worst, Whitley said then. I think he might have wrecked his car. That's the only thing I can think of. Something had to have happened. Now, Jackie Lynch, Travis's mother, said that Whitley called her house the night Travis disappeared to ask whether he made it home. That was something Whitley never had never done before. And Whitley has never called since. In the 16 years since Travis vanished, she's never contacted his family. Travis Lynch's aunt, Adeline, Lynch said her family went to Carlisha Whitley's house the day after Travis didn't come home, but they wouldn't let us look around the house. The only evidence investigators have that Travis tried to drive home is Whitley's statement. And that's according to Major David Brake of the Nash County Sheriff's Office. When previously asked whether Carlisha Whitley is a suspect in the case, Brake responded, we can't rule anyone out. Recently named as a person of interest in Travis's disappearance and probable death is Sean Whitley, Carlisha Whitley's uncle. In 2003, Sean Whitley lived in a mobile home next to a now shuttered notorious nightclub outside Bailey. The nightclub is the last place anyone outside the Whitley family saw Travis alive. The mobile home, which didn't have electricity, burned down in two suspicious fires in April 2004, which is different than the other thing, I think, Such as just as detectives began to rep ramp up their investigation into Travis's whereabouts. The missing person probe sped up already 
sped up another already underway investigation into a crack cocaine drug ring ran by Sean Whitley. Sean Whitley has been incarcerated in a federal in federal prison on drug trafficking convictions since 2005. He's now out. Um, Eckert also covered Sean Whitley's arrest when told recently that the investigation in the Sean Whitley's drug ring had been kicked into high gear by authorities looking to find out what happened to Travis. Eckert had one word for response. Crazy. Anyone with information about Travis's disappearance is asked to call 252-532-4574. And there's a reward of up to $20,000 being offered that leads to an arrest in the case. So they did an interview with the original reporter? Kind of. They wanted to know if this is a 2020 interview going back to an article right after Travis disappeared in 2003, where they're talking about a 2004 article. Uh, they're talking about in 2004, do, they did an article just basically covering that he couldn't be found. Right, right, because they can't get anybody else uh, with firsthand knowledge to talk about it. Right. right. That's essentially what's happening here. Um, and so, you know, it's possible there was something. Uh, now, they said that all they have is her statement uh, that he was driving home. And that's true, but it not that she's been talked to recently, but that has been the only statement she's made, right? And But for that, there's no information, Right? does not appear to be, no. Because basically it would have been wherever the, I, I don't even know. I think they were at like a friend's house, right? And yeah. And went back to her house so he could sober up. Well, I get the impression that people may have reported seeing him at the nightclub near the mobile home. And that's how we, that's how we get there. At the nightclub. Like the so yeah, really yeah so Sean Whitley his mobile home that burns down is next to a nightclub and there's indications in some of these articles that people unrelated to the Whitleys and unrelated to the Lynches the last time they saw Travis this is another one of those cases that you talk about is Christmas Eve at the nightclub right but how old is he so at the time that he disappears Travis is 22 and and he lives at home. That's uh, a, I mean, I guess it could be like one of the, because, you know, the other people we were looking at, they were female, right? And right. they were in their 30s. Yeah. And so like a young man living with his parents, I think some of the females live with their parents too, but like I said, they were older. I, I'm not sure um, really. So I will say this, if his girlfriend, uh, if she was his girlfriend, which Everything I've seen, it indicates she was his girlfriend, right? Have you seen anything to contradict that? No. Okay. And so, you know, what would make a girlfriend lie about her boyfriend having been at her house and leaving in his vehicle after heavily drinking? Well, that means somebody did something to him and it's somebody, it was either her, which is unlikely, or it was somebody that she cares more about than her boyfriend or has more control over some aspects of her life. Sure. You could put it that way if you want to, but it, so it's somebody that, cause you know, you're not going to, you're not going to protect somebody that's done something to someone you're in a uh, relationship with, unless there is a different motivation for doing so. Right. 
uh, she's not going to protect like a friend or like one of his friends or like whatever. Um, now they bring up, he had a temper. Uh, I guess that's corroborated somewhere, but there's no indication. Cause see when, when someone has a temper and they get into a fight and something happens, like that's actually when you want to call the police because like it could be legitimately defense, right? Self-defense or defense of others. Yeah, that's a possibility. I mean, so, well, if he hit her, got drunk and hit her, maybe that's why somebody did something about it. But that none of this makes sense with her calling mom. Well, that would be just to be setting the story up, right? Uh, I don't believe that. If she's never done it before, she's calling because she genuinely did not get called I, by him. I agree. And I also don't think, I, I don't know what happened except what's stated there. I don't think that... Somebody's showing up at your house and being like, where's my son? I need to look around. And you're like, yeah, he's not here. And you're not coming in and looking around. That doesn't necessarily, you know, scream guilt. Right. Because to me, like, I don't, I don't want people looking around in my house. Right. I mean, I I feel like that's a, that's a kind of, it's an acceptable response. Right. Because obviously if there's really a problem, the police can get a search warrant and they go absolutely look. Absolutely can, yes. And so, to me, I don't, I don't jump to foul play just because of that. I also, again, if he hit her and she did something to him in response, that's self defense. Um, if somebody else did something because he did something to her, again, that's defense of others, right? And so, I guess if you're somebody that, um, you know, it's in trouble for other things like they've they've kind of pinpointed here on her uncle it seems to me like that might hinder it a little bit but again i i I don't know i i just have trouble believing that well if you've got a conspiracy like that going and they've taken the time to call mom and ask about him which i think is i don't think that you do that because if you've got a conspiracy going i i do not think that you call it one or two in the morning to check on him. I think that's crazy. I think, I think you're kind of right because I feel like it would be drawing attention. It would be more authentic to wonder why he didn't show up. Right. Yeah. He left. Right. But he he, was drinking. But then again, her her calling to me, she doesn't know she's going to get mom. She's thinking he is drunk laying there, forgot to call her and he's going to pick up the phone and talk to her and say, I'm fine, baby. And hang up. That's what he's. That's what she's expecting when she makes that call. Otherwise, you're calling attention to something when you shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. But uh, so let's say let's play devil's advocate and say, okay, yes, uh, something happened. He witnessed something he shouldn't have. I don't think the girlfriend keeps her mouth shut about that, but it's possible, I suppose. However, you were talking about the power dynamic. Yeah, and we're talking about an uncle who's living in the family property without electricity, right? So. I don't know how much power he would have wielded over her, but let's say that it was some sort of blood loyalty. Where's his car? That's uh, that's the other part that I was going to get to. Okay, so you end up in a situation where every piece of it can't be true. This can't be the genius living without electricity running a crack ring out of the family mobile home with the power dynamic over the girlfriend and makes her call mom one or two in the morning or whatever, who also 
like is brilliant enough to make the car disappear in a way that it's never seen or heard of again. And then it, how to, it really doesn't run together, does it? No, it doesn't. And he only ends up being investigated, according to that, for the 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 gang that's moving this cocaine around. He gets he gets hit up on the the trafficking charges because of this kid being missing. In in my opinion, that would have been a situation where they probably would have figured out what happened. And. You know, they they put him away. He's in prison for quite some time because he's basically in prison from 2005 and he gets out in August of 2021. That's a lot of time. It really is. And huh, that man, if he if they if he genuinely was just either, you know, he fell asleep or he was intoxicated and he is his car and his remains are in the water somewhere. What a series of unfortunate events for all of them, right? It really is. And I'm telling you, I think I could actually, like, you could be right. Buckhorn being looked at would be smart. And Turkey Creek would be being looked at would be smart. I doubt it's Turkey Creek because I don't, in my opinion, Turkey Creek by now, the car would have been discovered. But Buckhorn, maybe not. Well, but my point was, like, Turkey Creek runs on the main road and it, it spills into Buckhorn Reservoir. Yeah. Uh, part of it, part of the whole car thing is like the cars move with the water, right? Yes, they would. And that's why, you know, it may not be completely obvious. Um, now, I didn't go driving this route or anything to see like, where could you go off the road, right? And so from an overhead map view, you can't really tell like where there's guardrails and things like that, right? Unless you go into the street view. I wanted to see if I couldn't get like a an older uh, satellite coverage, but they've changed the way that works and I wasn't able to see. So I may, I may have to go wander around on this one. I know where that is. Um, I, like there's an, air, an area down there that I, I totally picture a car being able to be hidden off the road in either the small retention pond. There's also, if I recall correctly, kind of a hairpin right turn and there's a gully on the other side. Well, I would say that um, I feel like his, okay, I guess I could put it this way. Even if he wasn't driving the car, I feel like his car is in water somewhere. Oh, I would agree with that. Whether in, he in, drove off the road or somebody else put it in the water. And I feel like that would be kind of a key. He's He may be, if he's in the trunk of the car, he probably didn't drive it off the road, right? Right, right. That's sort of where I was headed with that. Yeah. I was going to say, we could probably saw this either way if the car were to be found in any of those places that we're describing right now. Right. And, you know, that's a, that's something that I have thought about previously that, because to me, like, somebody missing in their vehicle that um, ends up in water, that is an accident most of the time, right? Unless they're in the trunk of the car. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. We've talked about it on several different cases. Right. So I do have an exoneration. I know this missing person's case ran long, but I really wanted to highlight Travis's case. Um, I feel like he falls into a, uh, a different category, which is uh, young African-American men who sometimes get forgotten in missing persons cases. And, you know, that, he, that he's a holiday case is particularly tragic. So I wanted to to highlight him. And that's why I spent a little extra time on it. And I appreciate you doing that with me. 
I have an exoneration case for today. This one is a is an older one. It's actually uh, one of the oldest ones. This is out of Manchester County, Vermont, and it's a murder case. The crime takes place in 1812. The conviction on this case takes place in 1819. And then there's an exoneration in 1820. Now, the demographics are, we have Caucasian males and they're brothers. There's two of these guys. And it's another one of those that when I hear about it, I'm like, what in the world are they talking about? The contributing factors here were false confession, false or misleading forensic evidence, and then perjury or false accusation. This, uh, have you ever heard of this one? Um, I don't think so, uh, but I have to say it is one of my favorite cases. Yeah. Stephen and Jesse Bourne are brothers who were sentenced to death in Manchester, Vermont in 1819 for the murder of their brother-in-law, Russell Colvin. Russell Colvin had disappeared and presumably been murdered in 1812. Although the Bournes had long been suspected of foul play, nothing happened in the case until their uncle allegedly claimed that in 1819, Russell Colvin's ghost had appeared at his bedside during a recurring dream and confirmed that he had been murdered. He did not identify his killers, but the uncle allegedly reported that the ghost confided that his mortal mortal remains had been put into an old cellar hole in a potato field on the Bourne farm. This is according to newspaper accounts at the time. The cellar hole gets excavated and there's no remains found. But shortly thereafter, one of the family dogs unearthed several bones from beneath a stump. Three local physicians examined the bones and they pronounced the bones to be human. And at this point, Officials in the area opened an investigation. Jesse Bourne was taken into custody, as Stephen Bourne no doubt would have been, except that he had moved to New York. Jesse shared a cell with a man named Silas Merrill. Silas Merrill was a forger, and he would claim soon that Jesse had confessed to him. In return for agreeing to testify against Jesse Bourne, Merrill was released from jail. Then, when Jesse was confronted with the mounting evidence against them, he made a statement to the authorities where he admitted killing Russell Colvin. He placed the principal blame for this on his brother, Stephen, whom he may have presumed to have been beyond the reach of the local authorities. However, a posse soon gathered and they went to New York and arrested Stephen. Shortly afterwards, he was returned to Manchester, and he confessed to murdering Russell Colvin as well. But the spin that he put on the case was that he was acting in self-defense. After the brothers were charged with Colvin's murders, the physicians changed their minds about the bones that had been unearthed by the dog, and they concluded they were, in fact, not human, but animal bones. Nonetheless, based on Merrill's testimony, the jailhouse snitch, and the defendant's inculpatory admissions, the prosecution pressed ahead with the case. There was no other proof 
of corpus delecti. There was no body in this case, but both brothers were convicted and sentenced to death. What makes this case your favorite case? I'm totally curious. Oh, there's so many things. I mean, you start the situation where you've got um, brothers, right? And a brother-in-law. Now, I assumed that that meant that this man was married to their sister. Yes. Okay. And so Russell Colvin left. We don't get a lot of details about that, but he disappeared. That's what we know at the beginning of the story. And, you know, then we have uncle. Yes. Because <laughs> we don't have his name, right? So it's just an uncle. Um, uncle, for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe it really did happen, but I'm thinking if, with a little bit, if there was more information available, there may have been a reason that seven years after Russell Colvin, the brother-in-law, suddenly disappeared, um, uncle is now seeing Russell Colvin's ghost in a reoccurring dream. Yes. And before you go any further, I did some digging on this one. Okay. okay. In 1812, the Bourne family of Manchester, Vermont, and you and I have played around in that area a lot, so I've gotten really familiar with how to dig through local records. It consisted of Barney Bourne. His sons were Jesse and Stephen. Their sister was Sally. Sally is who married this odd character, Russell. Well, I don't know that he's odd because he, he hasn't really done anything wrong. He is odd. Okay. Russell was not liked in the family. He did the weirdest shit. He would not work. He would show up to work and not know how to do things. And he was given to some peculiar antics in terms of what the family describes about him. They said that he would play with toys. And they said from time to time, he would wander off and not come back for a month or two, whatever that means. One day in May of 1812, he wandered off and he never returned. There was a rumor that he joined the War of 1812, but other people suspected that he fled to avoid it. And I heard a joke in some of the material related to this that he might have been sick of his wife's cooking. I mean, at this point, anything's possible, right? Right. So Sally's uncle Amos, A-M-O-S, he's the one who starts having these supernatural dreams in which Russell's ghost appears and says where his remains have been buried. Uncle Amos was viewed as a man of unimpeachable integrity. So a search is launched. And they find a lot of weird stuff in this area of this abandoned potato cellar, which turns out to be, you know, from the dream and real. Uh, they find a knife in there. They find some evidence that maybe some humans had been in, that, uh, in the area and left some things behind in a time that the Borns didn't seem to remember. One of the crazy things for me about this case is that these guys confess, they get convicted, and they're sentenced to be hanged. Now, on in their appeals, which is sort of the next part of this story, the Vermont legislature, they decide that Jesse Bourne's sentence is going to be commuted to life in prison. That's because he plays a relatively minor role in this murder since both of them can't possibly have murdered him. But they deny relief to Stephen. And Stephen is sentenced to be hanged in 1820. 
On the eve of him being hanged, some new information comes forth. And that information is that Russell Colvin has been found. He is working on a farm in New Jersey. So he appears in Manchester and his brother-in-laws are exonerated. They're then released and all of the charges against them are dismissed. Uh, right. Well, and so, you know, you asked me, like, why this is my favorite case. And I, I'm not saying favorite case of all time. I just, I like this case because it has a happy ending. So, you know, we've got the ghost witness to Uncle Amos, who now has a name. Uh, do you have any idea if Amos or Barney was older? Um, I think Amos is the older in this case, based on okay. what I can put together. Okay. And do you have any idea if Stephen or Jesse was older? I think Stephen is the older brother. Okay. Uh, I don't know that information. But uh, one of the interesting things uh, that makes this one of my favorite cases is that they did both confess, right? And you're like, well, wait a second. How did that happen, right? And in the summary of the exonerations, um, it's indicated that, you know, Jesse was still in the area. And um, he's got uh, the forger saying that he has confessed, right? Yeah. And then you've got like, uh, you know, we're talking about 1819. This is when this is happening. And so you've got that interrogation. How's that go, right? As far as, look, the forger you were sharing a cell with has said that you confessed to him. You know, if you can just give us the information, we'll go easy on you, I guess. I mean, I'm not really sure how, you know, it gets prompted that way. Um, but it, it says that as Jesse is, uh, confronted with the mounting evidence against him, right? Mm -hmm. He figures like, okay, this is, this has gone against me and, you know, I've got to do something. And so he takes the opportunity to admit it, but blame his brother, right? And I do think it, it, more than likely, Stephen is the older brother. But Jesse does it from a place of, like, getting this off of his back, taking the least amount of culpability possible, and thinking, like, oh, well, they can't get Stephen. He's in New York, right? For whatever reason, that's what he's thinking. And so when Stephen is then arrested, I don't know if Stephen's going, oh, no, Jesse killed this guy, and now he's blaming me. And... Now I've got to do something, and so I'm going to say it was self-defense, right? Because he's not going to turn around and blame his little brother, right? Yes. Okay. Or, right, he's going, I don't remember doing this. The only reason I would have killed this guy was in self-defense, right? And so since Jesse's confessed to this, this is what had to have happened. And so I have all these, like, running dialogues of, like, what the narrative possibly was, between these two brothers and like what leads them to both confessing to killing a guy who is ultimately alive and not just a guy, their, their sister's husband. Right. Yeah. So there's a write up on this one. Okay. There's a couple of different things. There's a story from 1924 called uncle Amos dreams a dream. 
they appear in convicting the innocent, which is errors of criminal justice. That's the Edward and Burchard book I've talked about before. Their chapter three, I think, is that is theirs. Um, and there's a story by Wilkie Collins called The Dead Alive that is also based off of this. So they appear in history a couple of different ways. What I think happened here, I think there was actually an incident where there was a fight between Jesse Stephen and Russell. And I think Stephen popped Russell in the head with a stick or a club because he was doing something stupid. And I think Russell left because of that. And Stephen thought that he had died. I think that's the way that it worked is like over time, you know, so Stephen's gone to New York, Russell leaves forever or whatever. And when they come and get him, I think that like they legitimately say, I, I guess what I did killed him. But, right, and that would be the be- that would be awesome if that if that's really what happened, right? Because you don't have anybody being shady or yeah. falsely confessing or anything, right? Yeah. Well, I will say this, and this is how I'm going to leave this one. I don't have anything else on it, but um, the the interesting part about all of this is Russell Colvin disappeared after he showed up. Like, see, so he shows up, they are freed, and then he's gone again. Right, but what's the ultimate ending? They they're freed. They go home. But, I know, but Russell what Cole, I have no idea what happened. Well, I don't think I think he was done there and he was uh it only was, coming back to to Because the, he was told like uh your wife's brothers are going to be or one of your wife's brothers is gonna be hung for your murder, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think he had been he was uh, gone, you know, he didn't want to go back because, I mean, they, they weren't very welcoming to him, but that was nice of him to show back up. But I don't know, maybe they, um, it could have gone the other way too. They could have been like, look, we've already paid for this crime, so we might as well commit it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that's what happened though. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time.
All right, so I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. 
There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. 
We're part of Zencaster's Creative Network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.